listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Peace be with you. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, No, he will be called John. Then they said to her, None of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around him, them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence of all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from the high will visit us, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Great to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Timothy Paul Jones. I'm one of your pastors here and delighted to be able to present the word of God to you today. Well, I made my family disappear. I made my family disappear. And thus begins the third greatest Christmas movie of all time. Right after number one, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, the greatest. Second, Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars Empire. If you don't think that's a Star Wars movie or a Christmas movie, then you just, we can talk about that later. But the third greatest Christmas movie of all time is Home Alone. And if you remember, Kevin McAllister has it out with his family and then he wishes that his family would disappear. He wishes that they would go away and he wakes up the next morning and his family has left and they have gone to Paris without him. And along the way, as Kevin waits during that time, he learns how to wait well. Now, first, he wastes his waiting. He spends his waiting on ice cream and marshmallows and scary movies. But then, as the story progresses, he begins to wait well. 
He goes to war against his enemies. He makes friends with somebody he thought was an enemy. And most important of all, he has a change of heart in his waiting. He no longer wishes his family would disappear, but he wants his family to return and he wants to be restored to his place in the family. And he learns to wait well by waiting with hope. He learns to wait well by waiting with hope that he will not be home alone forever. I want to ask you something. What are you waiting for? And are you waiting with hope? Or has your hope started to run out? What are you waiting for? Chances are you are not waiting for your family to return from Paris. You're probably not. But there are places in your life where you are waiting. What are you waiting for? You may be right now, there's a family gathering coming up and you're just waiting for it to be over. (laughs) You wish you could make your family disappear. You don't wanna go, you gotta get through it. You're waiting for a family gathering just to be over. But it may be you're waiting on something a lot more serious than that. That you're facing a chronic illness or chronic pain that's just limiting you. And it seems like this is never going to end and you're waiting on that. Some of you may be waiting for a person to come into your life. You want a spouse or you want a child that isn't there. There's something you're longing for, you're waiting. And in the midst of that, you feel like this is never going to work out. And you're waiting on something. Some of you may be waiting on the right job to come along. Things have been a struggle with that and you're waiting for that. Or it may be that there is a sin that keeps coming back in your life and you're waiting and you feel like that sin is just never going to go away. And you're waiting. What are you waiting for? I don't know what you're waiting for, but I do know this. Your waiting did not take God by surprise. Do you realize that? Nothing, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Like he knew this was happening. He knew that you were going to be waiting for this. God knows you're waiting and he knew it before you even knew it. He knew it from before the foundation of the world. God planned this waiting that you're experiencing. God planned it for a purpose. Your waiting has a purpose, so don't waste your waiting. Learn to wait well. Now, if you're struggling to wait well, you are in good company. Because Zechariah that we're looking at today, Zechariah was struggling at times to wait well. He's an old man, and yet he has no children. He wants a child. He's living at a time when Israel has not had a word from God in four centuries, 400 years. Not only that, he's old enough, he probably remembers the moment about 60 years earlier when the Roman general Pompey took over Jerusalem. He remembers that. He knows how they've been put under the thumb of the Romans and that they've remained there. And he's in the temple a few months earlier praying, asking God for a son, asking God for the redemption of Israel. He's praying and an angel shows up in the midst of his prayer. And yet in the midst of his prayer that he's waiting, he doubts. And when he doubts, God pulls out the heavenly remote control and hits mute. (laughs) 
And Zechariah's been muted for several months at this point. He has nothing to say. Uh, He may have plenty to say, but he has no capacity to say what he wants to say. And in his silence, Zechariah learns to wait well. He learns to wait well. So how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are waiting well and not wasting our waiting? I want to give you three simple truths today that we see in Zechariah about how to wait well. First thing to do when you're waiting, do what God has already declared. Second thing, declare what God has already done and live and die knowing that if it's not good, God's not done. Do what God has declared, declare what God has done, and live and die knowing that if it's not good, God's not done. So let's look at that in this particular text. While you're waiting, do what God has already declared in the past. This this text starts with a party. It's a party for the circumcision of this child. And remember, as you know, circumcision was for the people then a sign that they were connected back to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. That's what it was. It was a declaration of that. And on this eighth day of the child's life, they were going to circumcise the child and give him his name. And everybody that's gathered, all the friends, all the family, they say, we're going to call him Zechariah Jr., That's who he is. This child is who we're going to call him. He is going to be Zechariah Jr. After all, Zechariah waited so long for a child. Surely doesn't he deserve to have a child named after him? And so they're preparing to do this. But you see, God through the angel had said that his name would be John. Yohanan, that is to say Yahweh or the Lord is gracious, is his name. Now, it's not so much the meaning of the name that matters, it's who gets to name him. Because God has said, this particular child, I'm naming this one. This is one that I'm I'm naming. And in the, the, the Old Testament and throughout even all of Scripture, we see that when God chooses the name, he has a special calling for that child. And so for them to say, we're going to call this child what we want to call this child was to say to God, no, we have a better idea than you. And so Elizabeth says, no, you're not going to call him Zechariah. His name is going to be John. Now, have you ever been at that family gathering that somebody says something and it suddenly gets real quiet? Okay. Okay. You know, that, the family gathering where it's like, ooh, we was all thinking that, but you said it, and now it's on. You know what I'm talking about right there? That, that, that type of thing, that's what happens right here. She says something, and all of a sudden, woo, it's on. Everybody gets really, really quiet, and they're trying to convince her not to call the child what she, what they want, not what she wants to, what God wants to. And so, in the midst of this, what we see something here is this beautiful theme in Luke's gospel about how over and over in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, women are shown to be faithful witnesses of God's word and faithful servants of God's way. There is no gospel that elevates women in quite the way that Luke's gospel does. We see this here in in, in Elizabeth. We saw it earlier in Mary. We'll see it in the next chapter in Anna. We'll even find out in Luke's gospel that it was women who financially supported and funded Jesus's ministry. And so we see this here that Elizabeth is identified, is recognized in the text as somebody who is willing to be faithful to God no matter what. Now they start motioning to Zechariah at this point. Like, tell your wife, tell your wife, tell her. Like they want him to overrule her. 
And so they're nodding to him, motioning to him to do this. And so what we find that it says is he asks for a writing tablet. He asks for his tablet. Now, I think it's really interesting, the detail right there, this Kalapinakidion is, is what this is called right here, this writing tablet that he, he asks for. And, and it's one of those little tiny details that it speaks to this text as being grounded in eyewitness testimony. I'll tell you about this, what it is. It's like the iPad mini of the ancient world is basically what it is. They would melt wax, pour it into that, that wooden tray, and then they would write on the wax. And at the end of the day, they would recharge their device by scraping the wax out, melting it, pouring it in again. It was a reusable tablet. It's a very detailed little reference right here that is one of those things that lets you know this isn't a myth. <laughs> This isn't the type of thing that you're going to include a little detail like this, a little historically accurate detail, if this is something that's mythic. It's rather something that is true and based on eyewitness testimony. But he asked for this, and he takes the stylus, it would have been a bronze stylus most likely, and he writes in this, his name is John. Not his name should be John. Not his name will be John. Not his name could be John. His name is John. You see the difference in what he's saying right there? He's saying that we don't actually get to choose this. The name of this child has already been chosen. His name is John. God has already decided this. And you see this in Zechariah saying, I don't want him named after me. I want him named who God wants him to be named. That we see in Zechariah a person who wants God's will to be done more than he wants his own name to be remembered. He says, his name is John. And so you see a man here who in his waiting begins to do all that God has already declared. God had declared this is the name. And Zechariah does what God has already declared. Because he realizes there is no human power that can undo what God has already declared. <laughs> Do you realize that? There is no human power that can ever undo what God has already declared. And that is a comfort. Because if you are in Christ, what has God called you? He has said, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. He has said, you are a saint. And you may say, I don't act like a saint sometimes, and God would probably say, you're right, but I'm identifying who you are based on who I see you as in Jesus and what I will someday make you. And what God has declared, no human being can undo. You are beloved. You are his child. You are a saint if you are in Christ. And there is no human act that can undo what God has already done and declared. And that should be a comfort to you. There are some of you who in this week, this coming couple of weeks, you are going to go into a household, into a situation in which you don't know how you're going to be received and you don't know how people are going to treat you. You know how they've, what they've said in the past. You know how they've treated you in the past. And you are going to walk into a situation where you don't know what you're going to be called. But hear this. Hear this. Nothing that is said can change what is true about you. Nothing that is said can change what is most true about you. If you are in Christ, you are beloved. 
You are loved. You are adopted. You are a saint in him, no matter what anybody else has to say. And when God has declared it, no human being can undo it. His name is John. And nobody can change that. And the moment he does that, God hits the mute button again and unmutes Zechariah. And he's suddenly able to speak. And when he begins to speak, what comes out is everything that he has had on his mind since he last saw that angel in the temple. And he begins to declare all that God has done. So first he does what God has declared. And then he declares what God has done. And he begins in verse 68 by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has looked favorably on his people and he has redeemed them. He has set about to redeem them. He has looked favorably or visited his people and he has redeemed them. Ah, In the past, God had sent redeemers to redeem Israel. But what he's saying is there is coming a time soon when God himself is going to show up to redeem his people. And indeed, in Jesus, in the womb of Mary, he already had. God sent redeemers in the past, but God is now coming in person. Emmanuel, God with us. And as as Zechariah describes this, every line that he speaks draws from what God has done in the past in the Old Testament. Every line he speaks draws from that. He's declaring over and over what God has done. In verse 69, he mentions a horn of salvation, which was an ox horn, which was used as a symbol of strength and power in the ancient times. And that draws from Psalm 132 and verse 17, where it speaks there in Psalm 132, 17, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed one or for my Messiah. Verse 70, he speaks of the prophets from the Old Testament. Verse 73, he speaks of Abraham to whom God promised an oath. And so while Zechariah is waiting for God to act, he spends his time declaring what God has already done in the past. And then in verse 76, he turns and he looks into the eyes of that child in his arms. He looks into that child and he says, you child are a prophet of the most high God. Now you have said a lot of things when you look into your children's eyes, but that is probably not one of them. You are a prophet of the most high God. Wow. Now this is an earth shaking declaration because understand for four centuries, Israel has been a nonprofit organization. Like they didn't have any prophets. They were nonprofit. There was no prophets in Israel at all. And they knew this. They knew this extremely well. There's a book called First Maccabees. It's not in the Bible, not doesn't belong in the Bible, but you still ought to read it to understand the, the backgrounds of the New Testament. And in First in Maccabees, it says there was a tribulation in Israel, the worst since the time when the prophets ceased to appear among them. You see what he's saying right there? They knew back then, they knew between the Old and New Testament that the prophets had ceased to speak to them, but they knew something else. They knew the next thing on the agenda was God to send a prophet like Elijah to come before the moment when God himself would show up. They didn't know exactly how God was going to show up. They didn't know exactly how this prophet was going to come, but they had a clear expectation that there would be a prophet come who would announce the coming of God 
himself. And this prophet would prepare the way. Prepare the way. And even that is drawn from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, where it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, straight, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Now, this is referring to something that was actually something that was customary in their day. When a ruler came to visit your town, you would smooth the way, make it safe and smooth for the coming ruler. So you would straighten the path, you would straighten the way to make sure that that ruler coming to visit your town would be able to arrive in a way that was safe and smooth on that road. So it's referring to something that they were familiar with and there's a sense in which we do that to some degree today. I remember back in, it would have been June of 2012, I was in New Orleans and I was at a conference and I had a big backpack full of books because that's the type of conferences I go to. Uh, and so the, coming back from a conference in, in, in 2012, and it was in New Orleans, and I kept running into barriers. There are barriers set up. And I, New Orleans has parades all the time. They probably had the, parade, the barriers set up for parades. So I just went around them and kept on going through, cut through an alley. Suddenly I come out of an alley, and there are about a half a dozen guys in black suits standing there. <laughs> they all turned around and they looked at me. Well, what I didn't know is that the then vice president of the United States, Joe Biden, was in town. And he was coming through right there. And those barriers weren't anything you were actually supposed to go through. And these were Secret Service agents. And I'll just tell you something. Secret Service agents sometimes aren't very secret. And sometimes they're not very nice. Like, they, they're very, they're, they don't paid to be nice. And, and I'll just say, you do not ever want to pop out of an alley with a backpack right before a vice presidential motorcade in the Secret Service. And that's all I have to say about that. I have nothing else to say about this whole situation. But nonetheless, they were doing basically this preparing the way, okay? Somebody was coming, and they were preparing the way. But they were preparing the way primarily, I discovered, for safety. But here's the thing. When God shows up, he doesn't need anyone to keep him safe. God, God's like his own bodyguard. He, he is his own bodyguard. Nobody needs to guard God. He's able to take care of himself. And so the reason that there's this preparation is not to prepare the way so God is safe when he shows up. It's rather to prepare the people to be ready for the justice and the righteousness that God will bring. To repent and to turn to him when justice and holiness and righteousness. And he says, when that time comes, verse 78, it's going to be like the dawn will break upon us. I love that. The dawn breaks upon us. It's like the sun shines again when our God shows up. And I'm going to prepare the way for that moment when God shows up. John the Baptist is, and John will prepare the way for his coming. And even that is drawn from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter nine and verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You see that? Even that's drawn from the Old Testament. So what we see here is that when waiting at a time when God seemed silent, Zechariah spent his time here declaring what God had already done in the past. And that's not just for Zechariah, that's for us. If you feel like you're waiting and God isn't showing up, 
Declare what God did in the past and keep declaring it. You start with scripture. Start with what it says in Holy Scripture. If you're waiting and it just feels like God is not listening to you, remember that he did not forget those slaves in Egypt over centuries. And he came to rescue. He heard their cry and he came to rescue them and brought them liberation. If you feel like you're caught up in a sin that just keeps coming back and there's no rescue from it, remember that King David, God sent a prophet to bring David back from his sin. And that may have been hard, it may have been difficult, but it brought David back to the righteousness that God wanted for his reign. And God will bring you back. If you feel like, if you feel like that you are struggling and waiting and you are hurting and God is doing nothing in your life, Remember, remember that woman who for 12 years had waited sick, spent all that she had on doctors, and that Jesus showed up and changed everything. Or remember Paul, who though God did not heal his thorn in the flesh, God gave him extra grace to be able to endure it for God's glory. Remember that. When you feel like you are waiting, spend your time declaring what God has already done. Do it first from Scripture, but don't stop. Don't stop at Scripture. Look at your life, too, at the things you've seen and experienced in your own life. You remember that one time when the accounts were all empty, and at the time you did not expect there was money showed up that should never have, but it did, and things came through. Remember that. Remember that time that you knew somebody, or maybe it was you, that the doctor said, there is no hope. This is a matter of months at most. But they were still there years later. They were still there. Remember, remember if you are feeling like a loneliness, a feeling that you're longing for, for children that have never shown up, remember and think of how God brought children in a way that you didn't expect into your life. And maybe for some of you, you remember the time you had gone through months, maybe years of darkness, and you had the pills, and you'd made the decision, you're just going to end it. And at the last moment, for some reason you can't even explain, you just didn't do it. You didn't do it. Something happened to derail that. Remember that. Remember that. And remember most of all in your times of waiting that there was a time, if you are in Christ, that there was a time when you were lost and an enemy of God and God reached down and saved you. Remember that. Remember that. When you are waiting, declare all the things that God has already done. Declare it first from Scripture, and then declare it from your life. Declare what God has already done. That's what Zechariah did while he was waiting. He declared what God had already done. And so can you, and so can I. The last truth I want you to see here is to live and die knowing that if it's not good, God's not done. 
If it's not good, God's not done. This text, if you think about it, like for us, it goes straight to Christmas from this text. And then it goes to the 12-year-old Jesus and then to his baptism. But remember, it didn't happen that way in real life, in real time anyway. In real time, once Zechariah's song faded, three decades passed before John was revealed for who he was. Three decades passed before Jesus was revealed to Israel. You see, Zechariah wasn't there to see the, the angels singing at Christmas. He wasn't there for any of that. Three decades pass before God's plan of salvation becomes clear. And not only that, along the way, it seems that Zechariah and Elizabeth both died along the way. They died. You look at what it says in verse 80. The child grew, became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness. There's a lot of things that can mean, but one of the main things it definitely means is that this, he was being prepared by God. The desert is a place of preparation for the people. Until the day it says he appeared publicly to Israel, but somewhere in that, Zechariah and Elizabeth pass away. They die. They die before they see God's goodness in all of its fullness. But God wasn't done. God wasn't done. Three decades later, we find that John began to proclaim Jesus, the Messiah, coming. And then John died. This baby we're celebrating and talking about today, he was beheaded by a king for speaking the truth. And then not only that, Jesus stapled to a cross and he dies and he dies. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, along the way somewhere, died as well. And all of that seems like there was nothing good except for there was that third day. <laughs> there was that third day. And on that third day, a heart that had stopped began to beat again, and a blood-crusted eyelid opened, and veins and capillaries that had collapsed in, they began to pump again, and Jesus came out of the tomb alive and well, and it was revealed that all of these things that seemed so bad were actually part of God's good plan. They were all part of God's good plan. All of them, all of them were part of the plan of God for the redemption of his people. And if you remember nothing else, remember these seven words. If it's not good, God's not done. Because that's what we see here. If it's not good, God's not done. That was true then. Four centuries of silence, 30 years of waiting, and it was true then. But it is true in your life as well. If it's not good, God's not done. So what are you waiting for? If you're waiting for the grief to the pain to pass, it's not good. But remember, God's not done. If you're waiting in loneliness, it's not good. But God's not done. If you're facing chronic pain, if it's not good, God's not done. If you just want a family that's not broken into jagged pieces, if it's not good, God's not done. God's not done. Now, sometimes the good comes in this life. Sometimes the good you see from the next one. And that's okay. That's okay. Because in Christ, your life will outlast your epitaph. You will last longer 
than your funeral. And you will have a far longer life on the other side than you do on this side. And sometimes you get part of the good in this life and praise God for that. But we don't get the full good till the next life. And that is okay. And someday you'll raise a toast with a glass filled with the pain of your past. And you'll find that the sorrow has been replaced with joy. The sorrow replaced with joy. And somehow the pain you have now will become part of the happiness you feel then. I don't know how that works completely, but it's what the empty tomb tells us. He said the empty tomb isn't glorious apart from the death that happened three days before. The glory of the empty tomb is dependent upon the cross. The happiness that comes through the empty tomb is dependent on the pain that came before it. And in your life and in mine, the happiness you will feel in eternity is dependent upon the pain you're feeling now. The pain you're feeling now will be part of the happiness then. That's what the empty tomb teaches us. And when we emphasize, as I am, the next life, don't think we're giving up on this life. <laughs> don't think we are. We are not giving up on this life by looking to the next life. And I think the best example of, of how that works is those people who for generations lived enslaved by people who thought they could own other people. And I think of the spirituals that they sang, and so many, in fact, about two-thirds to three-quarters of the spirituals mention at some level something about heaven that is yet to come. And yet that focus on the life that was yet to come did not keep them from fighting for justice and freedom where they were. Looking to the, to the freedom of the future didn't, in fact, it empowered them to be able to look for freedom and justice where they were. Remember that these same spirituals that pointed forward to that often were songs that were coded messages that led people out of enslavement and to escape. You see that looking forward to the future doesn't mean you stop looking at the present. It just means you know what the present ought to look like and you live according to that. Confidence in the next life empowers us to look for goodness in this life. That's what it does for us. I think of a mixtape a few years ago from Trip Lee. They said it so well. I love how he says it. He says, the real good life, I can't wait. Please save me soon. But until then, I'll be praising you in the waiting room. This life is like a waiting room for the next life. It's good and it's beautiful in so many ways, but it's not the final destination. <laughs> and we've got to recognize this life where we praise God, we are praising him in the waiting room. So don't waste your waiting. Don't waste your waiting. Do what God has already declared. Then declare what God has already done. And remember, if it's not good, God's not done. God's not done. I said when I started the sermon, we're preparing it a couple of weeks ago, I quote from Augustine, the African theologian Augustine, greatest theologian, almost every time. I'm not going to do it, but then I ran across this quote, and I've got to let it share it with you. It's so good, so good. Hear this. Augustine, North African theologian from the 4th and 5th century, says this in one of his sermons on 1 John. If you know you're going to be given a bag full of something, 
you're going to stretch the bag as much as you can. Why? By stretching it, you increase its capacity. That's what God does too. When he makes you wait, he increases your desire, which stretches your soul and makes you able to receive so much more. In your times of waiting, God is stretching your soul for a blessing that is yet to come. Some of that blessing comes in this life. Some of it comes in the next life. But he is stretching your soul for blessings that are yet to come. I'll leave you with three questions. Three questions. When are you tempted to ignore what God has declared? What are those times when you're waiting on God and you just think, I'm going to do my own thing in my own way because God's not doing anything? When are you tempted to ignore what God has already declared? Maybe a sin, it may be an attitude, it may be something you return to when you feel like God's not there, that you return to this one. When are you tempted to ignore what God has already declared? A second question, what can I declare that God has done? You feel like you're waiting and God's not doing anything, sit down and make a list of all the things that God has done already and let that shape your soul in such a way that you look forward to what he has yet to do for you. And lastly, am I in Christ so that these blessings are mine? All these blessings I've talked about, they are only yours if you are in Christ. If you have come to a place where you have trusted Jesus, if you have come to a place where you have said, I will follow you, I am yours, I trust you, none of these blessings are yours apart from Jesus. These blessings are only yours in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ. And so I want to ask you, are you in Christ so that these blessings are yours? Are you? Because hear this. Jesus on the cross took the wrath that is deserved by every person who will ever trust in Jesus. Everyone who will ever trust in him. The wrath of God fell on Jesus for that and he was raised in triumph over it to make a way that if you will trust him, these blessings are yours in Christ. They are yours. So if you've never done that, I want to encourage you. That's one thing don't wait for. <laughs> wait for a lot of things, but don't wait for that. Because today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Trust Jesus today today. After the service, there'll be pastors over here in this room to my left, your right. And if you are interested in that, you're struggling with that, or maybe today you've trusted Jesus, then go. I'd love to talk to you about that. Because these blessings I've described are only yours in Christ. There's nothing we would want more than for you to know Christ and to experience all that we've described in him in him. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.